Well, I feel a little sad to come to the end of this study in 1 Peter and in Peter's life. So we've been thinking about spiritual formation over a whole lifetime and looking at this part of ordinary time at Peter and in the last part of ordinary time at David. I don't know, of course, what this has done for you all, but for me, I've realized afresh how very much, even after decades of pursuing it, that I need my own spiritual formation. And, you know, Peter has this interesting uh, reputation in the church amongst Protestants. He's kind of most known as the sort of dopey guy who gets it wrong so much of the time. And of course, in other wings of the church, you know, he's Peter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, he's the man. And I think I love it because and I, it's one of the narratives in the Bible, you know, we all probably have narratives in the Bible that we hold better or worse in our head. And for some reason, I can just really hold that narrative of Peter in my head and see the connection from denial to restoration at the beach to his letters. And I just want to say, setting aside Protestant Catholic dialogue, I'll bet you anything, Peter is a glorious being. I'll bet you he's stunning. Just a stunning example of what God intended for humanity. Sorry for the name dropping, but just so you can get a picture of what I'm saying. I mean, this is like decades ago two or three decades ago, I had the great privilege of working for four days with Billy Graham in Seattle and got to spend a lot of time around him and, and, you know, his senior team, you know, arguably the most famous Christian of the 20th century. And, you know, he's famous because he's famous, you know, all the big stadium events all over the world and stuff. But I'm telling you, just me and you as friends, what was stunning about Billy was his obvious, genuine humility. I don't think he ever stopped being a farmer's kid from North Carolina. I was way more impressed with his qualities of being than I was seeing 60,000 people file into stadiums. Amazing. Well, I think you multiply that time several times and you probably have somebody like a Peter. I'll bet we will be stunned by the formation that this very difficult life brought to him. So I think we see a bit of that when his attitude in verse 1, when he says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Like, really? You're Peter? Like one of the big three? And the guy who Jesus said he was going to, like, build the church on your confession of his lordship? Really? And you're, you're placing yourself with just these sort of house church leaders? And I, as I thought about this week, it reminded me of something that I know for Beth and I and for others, that one of the guiding thoughts over these seven or eight years of our church is the knowledge that I I and others stand here every week, and I'm completely aware that I'm looking out over a congregation of people who's just chocked full of elder types, teachers, spiritual directors, therapists, clergy, Sunday school teachers, and other categories of all kinds of spiritually mature people. That's who sits here week in and week out. And I just want to say to you that a core part, I, mean, we, I think we probably don't say this enough, but a core part of our vision as a church has been to serve you, to create a place. We're not joking when we say, come rest from your work. All you professors and therapists and teachers and you who give yourself away all day, every day out there in the world, come, come rest. Come find a place here where you can rest. We'll, we'll create a restful space for you. And in that restful space, you can begin to reflect on your life. And as you reflect on it and you find the places that are or are not aligned with the aims of God in your life, well, then you can adjust. You can rest and reflect and, and then redirect your life to Jesus as his apprentice. But we're, that, that's not just rhetoric for us. I mean, that is just core to what we think that we're doing here. 
So he says, I'm a fellow elder. And I think what we see here in Peter is this amazing attitude. It's not just humility, but I want you to think about this the other way, the other side of the coin. He's also lifting these elders into what God is doing in him. Do you see what I'm saying? He's not just condescending in a good sense. He's not just, maybe a better word, he's not just incarnating himself onto the level of these house church leaders, but he's lifting them up into what they know of him to be Peter. He's lifting them up into what God is doing in and through him. And I think the reason this is true, and this is why I love the narrative so much, is that Peter knows that any judgment from the chief shepherd will also include him. He's already been through it. He knows it includes him. But he also knows it includes the beach. And I said last week, I just think this is so core to our formation. I know you're going to blow it. I know you've blown it. Not many of us have probably ever said, no, I don't know him. But all of us, in one way or another, have denied Jesus. And you just have to know that the beach awaits you. In fact, as I thought about this this week, I mean, uh, so much has been said and could be said about these passages. We can never say enough. But I, I would be really happy is if all you got out of these five or six weeks is that you never forget that scene on the beach. You never, ever, ever forget the will of God to restore you to him. For you to be regenerate, for you to be reconciled to him, for you to regenerate, find a new life when you've gone away bitterly weeping and thought that you threw it all away. No, you can find a new life. You can be regenerate. And when you think that that denial and you locked eyes with him across the courtyard And Jesus, who's already unfairly being punished, he looks at his best friend and they lock eyes. And and I think Peter saw Jesus's pain deepen. And so imagine how Peter felt that the man who he said he would never deny, he just wounded him even farther and he sees the wounding in Jesus's eye and goes away and weeps bitterly. But the beach, just never forget that beach scene. It's core to the heart of God. It's really a brilliant little narrative that talks about all the sort of highfalutin theology that when we think about God and we think about things like agape love or covenant faithfulness or, you know, it's all, so many categories of theology are right there on that beach scene, lived out amongst these two men who had otherwise been estranged. Now notice also in verse one that when Peter is trying to give a basis or a rationale for what he's saying to them, he, he does so by saying, I'm a witness of Christ's suffering. And so now think about what I just said, not just the suffering of the trials, the unfair trials that are beginning, but the suffering of being disowned by his best friend. So this is fascinating to me that Peter doesn't say, hey, look, I appeal to you on the basis of the resurrection. I saw the resurrected Christ. You think with me for a minute. Isn't that fascinating? Like if you were trying to give yourself chops to sort of make somebody listen to you, wouldn't you say, well, I saw the resurrected Christ? Or what else might Peter have appealed to? Transfiguration. I was there, yo. I mean, you all talk about it. I was there. He doesn't appeal to that. He doesn't appeal to the moment when Jesus says, you're the rock. He appeals to that moment of knowing that he had participated in the sufferings of Christ. And so he's appealing to this very deep thing in him that the beach brought to him and that he had kind of in that sense suffered with Jesus. And so Peter roots his authority in the most painful moment of his discipleship to Jesus. Again, I mean, that's just worthy of a whole sermon right there, that he roots his authority in the most painful aspect of his life. The artists in the room get that like that. You know, you sometimes hear of a young singer you know, maybe 14, 15, 16-year-old singer who she's spot on 
timing, everything's in the pocket, spot on in tune, you know, spot on not forgetting the lyrics. And you often hear people who understand music will say things like, she's going to be fantastic once something breaks her heart. She'll be great. Because there's just more to life than singing in tune. And so Peter appeals to that kind of deeply broken and deeply put back together self to appeal for what he's teaching. Now, this brings up, I think, a very important point. That Jesus never said a prayer and healed somebody's character. You just think for a minute. Can you think of any passage in the synoptics where Jesus laid his hands on somebody or something and healed their character? He might have healed emotions. He might have taught and enlightened their mind. But there is no passage in the New Testament where Jesus ever just heals somebody's character. You know, Jesus didn't have to say, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows early this morning. He could have said, Peter, I'm going to give you temporary lockjaw. I'm going to make it so you can't do this. But look at me. Then where's the beach? There's no beach. Apparently, it was better for the ongoing kingdom of God, and it was better for Peter, for Peter to go through that and to have his character healed through the soil of his actual life. That's how character is formed. That's how virtue is formed. Virtue is formed from the slow, patient process of our actual desires and wants coming into coherence with God and his kingdom. That is spiritual formation over a lifetime. It may involve moments of inner healing. It may involve moments of great breakthrough in therapy. All those things are legit. It just can't be reduced to that because character is formed in other ways. Character is formed through God allowing us to actually go through the things of our life. You might think here the parable of the sower. Remember that parable where some fell upon the rocky ground, you know, some the birds ate? Remember that parable? Well, I'll bet that a vast majority of you in this room have always thought of that parable as deterministic. They're like, well, some people, you're just rocky ground. Sorry, sucks to be you, but, you know, you're just rocky ground. Others... And, you know, the birds just eat up everything. And we think of it as deterministic, but it's not deterministic. It was never meant to be deterministic. Jesus was just simply observing that when the seed of the kingdom is sown, this is where some people are in their life. So did you catch that? This is just where somebody is in the moment in which the kingdom seed is sown to them. But formation over a lifetime teaches us that this is not meant to condemn your whole life that you can learn to hide from the birds. You can soften the rocky ground of your heart. You can use some Roundup on the weeds. It doesn't determine you forever. You're not permanently labeled or stuck. Now again, just think of that courtyard behind you and Peter and Jesus' eyes locking, Jesus feeling the pain, Peter feeling his own kind of pain, walks out of the courtyard towards the parking lot maybe, deeply weeping, and don't you know he feared, damn it, Damn it, damn it. What now? I'm here forever. Nope, the beach. See you on the beach. You're not here forever. You're not consigned to be rocky ground, Peter. You're not consigned to have a heart full of weeds. You're not consigned to the birds picking out of your heart the things that I've sown. That's not deterministic. Yeah, you've had a bad moment, but what's deterministic is God's call on your life. It's irrevocable. In the same way his call, Paul says, on the nation Israel was irrevocable. His call to, in a sense, this reconstituted Israel, as Peter is seen as sort of the head of it, that, that calling on Peter was irrevocable. That one little moment was not going to cause God to say, oh, well, guess it's over. 
No, he actually let him go through it because it would deepen Peter's character. That that moment of suffering would be the moment of the healing, in a sense, of Peter's character. So then now I think Peter, verse 5, comes out with just kind of explaining a bit of his heart with the encouragement to all of them, the sort of house leaders and the lay people alike, to clothe themselves with humility, if you look at verse 5 to have humility towards one another, to put one another first, that is to say their desires, their needs, their ideas. Of course, Paul says something very similar to this in Philippians 2 when he says, in humility, value others among your, above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So now remember what I said a minute ago, that Peter appealing to them as a fellow elder isn't just him condescending to them, It's him looking to their interests and what God's doing in them and lifting them up into what Peter knows God has done in and is doing through him. Well, later on in verse 5, he answers the question, why? Like, why would anybody want to do that? Who in the world wants to look to other people's interests instead of their own? And the answer that Peter gives us, verse 5, is that because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble goes on in verse 6 saying, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Now again, every, anybody with any sense of Hebrew history reading Peter would have known exactly what he meant by that phrase, God's mighty hand, right? You might even be thinking of the Old Testament times where you, you know that phrase, God's mighty hand brought them out of Egypt through God's mighty hand or sometimes his strong right arm, he's shown his greatness, that his strong hand is the assurance of your destiny. And this is meant to free us to, as Beth started us with, to cast all our cares upon God. Are you feeling me here? It's that sense of the strong, mighty hand over our lives and in our hearts. That's meant to be a freeing thing. Now, I want you to look at your art card again. And notice the posture of the sheep's head. See the posture of their head? There's kind of a relaxed, just feeding Apparently, all their cares have been cast on someone else. And then now just note the strength of that shepherd standing there. And now look at me. Sheep who have cares do not look like this. They look like this. But in the presence of that shepherd, all their cares have been cast on him. And that allows them to just feed and to feed in peace. They don't have to worry about snakes. The shepherd is there. They don't have to worry about wolves. The shepherd is there. They don't even have to worry about thieves. The shepherd is there. And this, this is something like what Peter has in mind when he talks about casting all your cares on the strength of that shepherd in the foreground so that it'll allow you to have their peaceful presence. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Romans, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for it all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now what if you actually thought that was true? Not that you should think it's true or you ought to think it's true. But what if you actually thought that was true? That he who gave us his son, will he not also give us all things? And therefore, I can just cast all my anxiety upon him. I'm okay. I'm safe. So what Peter has in mind here is kind of a happily yielding to God's wisdom, to accepting the twists and turns of God's providence in our life. Now, this isn't fatalism. This is very different than fatalism. It's different than the philosophical idea of determinism. This is a relational trusting where, again, you look at those sheep, and then in the foreground is the shepherd. That's relational. That's not philosophical. That's not theological. That's relational. And that's what's in view here, that this person, God, who has given us his son, 
well, won't this same person also give to this person what I need? And so when we do that and we begin to actually entrust all our concerns to him, there's this deep and profound spiritual wisdom that comes to us. Now to the beach. Speaking of everything that Peter's been talking about here, and this is the connection that I've started with. Wow, all the ups and downs of Peter's life, the big down of denial, and then the beach, and now his letters. And Peter, of course, has been reflecting on his actual life. But that beach scene was really humbling conversation for Peter. When Jesus asks him, as Dennis read, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, scholars have debated for millennia what these means. The consensus is Jesus probably means something like, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because you're the big shot who told me you love me more than all the rest of these guys. And then you split. Jesus is fingering the very thing that Peter had wept bitterly about. And kind of saying, are you sure? I mean, you said so, but then we both saw what happened in the courtyard. Like, are you sure you love me more than these? Yes. Three times, yes. Now I want you to see the then. Okay, then, Peter, you are called and commissioned to feed my lambs, to tend my sheep, to feed my sheep. Okay, Peter, you go, boy. But what this has all been about, where this is going, is you participating with God in his kingdom and you being one of the ones who helps foment that on the earth. And so now again, picture Peter, he's gone through that beach scene and look at verse seven and think of the underlying personal wisdom under this. I mean, cast all your anxiety on him could just be the zenith of mere religious rhetoric. It can be um, actually a source of guilt or shame. Like I can't do it. So there must be something wrong with me, right? But again, I want you to see that this is deep personal experience. It's not, it's not something Peter's putting on you like some religious guilt trip. It's, he's, he's like cracking open his chest and saying, y'all, I learned this the hard way, but I'm just telling you, you can cast all your anxiety on him. Because Peter was standing here, he might, he might say something like, I never felt more anxiety in my life than in that moment when I betrayed my Lord. I thought it was bad that time. We thought we were all going to drown. And there were times when Jesus was all ticked off at us because we didn't understand what he was teaching or doing. But I'm telling you, that moment in the courtyard, that was the zenith. But I'm telling you, the beach. And therefore, you can cast all your anxieties on him. But of course, you know, practically speaking, it always raises the question, but if I put others first, who then will care for me? Who will make the effort that determines what my life amounts to? And the answer is, you cast all your anxiety on him. Look at verse 7, because he cares for you. I love the way Peterson gets this. Live carefree before God, for he is most careful with you. See, it's the carefulness of God's connection to us, that carefulness, that allows us to be carefree in Peter's vision of this. And so I think Peter would want us to know that this is the path to humility, to freedom from constant self-concern, which then in turn frees up heart space and mind space. Can you feel that? Like what could free up heart and mind space for you so that you had kind of heart and mind space left over to actually care for others? I'm writing a book this summer and whenever I'm writing a book, I get a little neurotic about saving things. So like I save it on my computer, I save it on jump drives, I email it to others, like, you know, just worst case scenario is right to lose all your work on a book. Yesterday, I went to put what I'd finished on a jump drive and I kept getting this pop-up that said, what? You don't have enough room. 
And so, okay, so I went, tried to take things off, still didn't have enough room. So I, you know, go find one of the kids. Hey, you guys got an extra jump drive. And that's, I think, a great picture. It's very hard to put spiritual things into the heart, into a heart that is already too full or a mind that's already too full with its own cares. Something has to clear a little space. And then you look at verse 10, the scripture that we started with this morning. Along this path of humility that Peter's commending to us, God will restore you, make you strong, make you firm and steadfast. Now, these are the moments where I always wish we were doing a Bible study because, I mean, this is worth digging into. But just quickly, restore you. Do you happen to remember the week that I used that image from Japanese art of kintsugi? How when a a pot or a teacup or something is broken, in Japanese history, they put it back together, but they somehow kind of glue it back together with gold. And so when the broken vessel is actually put back together nicely, it has more value than it did before it was broken. And this is what's in view here. I'll put you back together such that no matter, listen to me, no matter how broken you were, when I put you back together, you're Peter. After the beach, you're Peter in quotes. You're not just Peter the dope. You're Peter in quotes when I put you back together, even after bad brokenness. Again, it's like I said earlier, it becomes honest art. Did you catch that? A life put back together becomes honest art. It's not just sung in tune and sung in rhythm. It's got a heart behind it, comes honest in that sense. I'll make you strong. The the Greek here is like sort of solid as granite. I'll make you firm. It means like filled with strength. I'll make you steadfast. Your life will become settled on a secure foundation. Now I said at the beginning that uh, reading 1 Peter again has been amazing for me. I have genuinely realized afresh, as I said, even after decades of pursuing my own formation, how very much I need it, and how it's never going to stop. And I could say, actually, hand over heart, that it's mostly a source of joy. I love it. I'm so thankful to have been called to become Jesus' apprentice and to have become one. It's the greatest invitation any human being could have ever heard. I'm grateful for the covenant grace of God that allowed me to say yes. It's the most amazing thing ever. It's lifelong. happens over a period of life. So along the way, I've learned that being an apprentice of Jesus requires that I kind of learn how to learn again. And so just as an example, then we're done. Like for me, I I had to learn that what was happening in the spirit life was different, for instance, than what I had experienced in athletics or different than what I had experienced in education. That growth in the spiritual life is slow and requires patience. My greatest vice, impatience. And this requires deep patience. And when you have those moments when the birds are picking away the seed of the kingdom, you cannot say to yourself, okay, this is me. You can't say this is me. You have to say this is a moment. This is not me. This is a moment. And just be patient. It's not just thoughts. That would be pretty easy. It's not just feelings. I mean, that's hard. But when you think that it's thoughts and feelings and will and body and heart and mind and soul, my practices of life, my real life, this just says to us, what are you and God working on now? What are you guys doing together now? Does it have to do with birds or rocky soil or weeds? or What what are you guys working on now? That's how spiritual formation happens over a lifetime. There's a nowness to it. What are you working on now? What's real in this moment? And perhaps that can be your question for our quiet time this morning. What are you and God working on now?
Amen.